Hello, everyone, and welcome to We Blame Harry Styles, a podcast dedicated to the work of musician, model, and actor Harry Styles. This week in episode 29, we're going to do a two-hour analysis of Harry and Nick Kroll's legendary kiss in Venice. Just kidding. We're discussing Don't Worry Darling today. My name is Key. And I'm Gray. And what do we blame Harry for this week, Gray? I'm tempted to say nothing, because he's been blamed for quite a lot lately by uh, every gossip rag in town and many reputable publications doing irreputable reporting. Is irreputable a word, Key? It sounds like it is to me. It is now. But as much as I would love to say I don't blame Harry for anything, because he's been through enough, his most recent film asked the question, should men be allowed to have podcasts? And also answers it with no. So I'll blame him for that. Harry Styles, why are you mean to men? Why do you hate my podcast? It really does feel like a personal attack. It does. Uh, Key, what do you blame Harry for? You know, I'm going to take the positive tack to start out this episode, and I'm going to say that I blame Harry for the wonderful weekend that I did indeed have with my friends, which now seems like a lifetime ago, but (laughs) since we last recorded, (laughs) we did see Harry in concert, uh, the two of us and two of our other friends, and we had Mm -hmm. a lovely time. So that was a great thing that happened since the last time we recorded. It was great. We don't get as much time together as I would like, and so it was really nice uh, for all all the besties to get together. It's true. All right, well, we should get into it because before we get into, you know, the, the, you know, from the title of this episode, what we're going to talk about today, uh, there has been a crap ton of news since we last recorded. So it's been crazy. It's been wild. Gray, why don't we get into it? Okay. To put it briefly, Harry was in Rolling Stone as the first global cover star. Harry has been doing his North American residency. Harry got a banner for performing for 15 nights at Madison Square Garden. Um, Only two other people have banners at Madison Square Garden, that being Billy Joel and Fish. What a random assortment of artists that is. I know. (laughs) Uh, Billy Joel, Fish, and Harry Styles. And I feel like one of those things is not like the others. Uh, (laughs) If you're listening from a bunker in the far-off apocalyptic future where all news from 2022 has disappeared, Harry attended Venice Film Festival to promote Don't Worry Darling earlier this month. He looked amazing. Uh, He gave Nick Kroll a big kiss. And he did a press conference. And he was on the red carpet. And when I was watching it, I had a great time. Uh, He looked beautiful. I thought he was well-spoken. And it turned out that the rest of the internet also felt that way. And that was it. Storybook closed. What a happy ending. Everybody just thought that Venice Film Festival was so fun and that Harry was so charming and so beautiful. And my screen time for that day on Twitter was at an all-time low. (laughs) We were all enjoying ourselves. We were all having such a good time. No, I mean, the day of, I actually did have a really good time. The day after... I was like, I was, it was, it was bad for me. It was bad for me, you guys. My screen time app looked like Mount Everest. Yeah. Uh, The day after Venice Film Festival, I mean, the internet was just overflowing with positive articles about Harry and, and and how, how uh, beautiful and sweet and lovely he was. And so my screen time the day after Venice was very high because I was like, wow, 
I agree. <laughs> <laughs> and that's um, all that happened. And that's all that happened. So speaking of film festivals, Harry also attended Toronto International Film Festival to promote My Policeman. The cast of My Policeman is very close together. Uh, and incidentally, they and I all pronounce it like My Policeman, not My Policeman. <laughs> At the aforementioned uh, residency get-together, he took me aside and he was like, so I, I, I don't think it's my policeman. I think it's my <laughs> policeman. We had a conversation. It was like Spider-Man, Spider-Man, policeman, policeman. It was like, you know, it was a whole thing. But Spider-Man is not pronounced like that. I know it's like it is it's like one thing but not the other rectangles and squares thing you know yeah well I mean I guess it's Spider-Man because there's a dash in there there you go that's the reason yeah it's like it's like you guys are in that New York diner with us right now (laughs) (laughs) yeah um but yeah everybody in the movie won an award for acting I can't say whether or not it was deserved because I haven't seen the film yet Um, excited to see it I am excited to see it. I will be seeing it at New Fest on October 19th. So I'm really excited about that. Um, me and my partner are both attending and it's going to be great. So until last week, um, As It Was, was still the number one song in the United States. Um, and at the same time, Don't Worry Darling was also the number one film in the United States. And that has only been done three other times. Uh, by Beyonce, Prince, and Eminem. So he's up there with them, uh, which is just like bananas, because they, they were all, when that happened, the biggest thing in the world. And he has two names, and they all only have one name. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> like, he's the first artist with two, with names, two names to do that. Yeah. Pretty crazy. Yeah. It's really, really crazy. It's been nuts. You know, I was on uh, Twitter... And uh, Rolling that's Stone your first had, mistake right there. <laughs> Rolling Stone had published an article about uh, Harry September, and they were saying his September was like a, like a golden September or something, which you know uh, is a take. <laughs> so <laughs> they were reporting that, and I shared it on my uh, currently locked Twitter account. And somebody who follows me was like. Oh, for a second I was reading this and I just couldn't believe that Rolling Stone was published just this month. His but, profile, right? Yeah, the profile. But, oh, thank God, this is just Rolling Stone reporting on the other things that happened in September. And I was like, yep, Rolling Stone published an article uh, online for their September issue five weeks ago. <laughs> so We've that, all lived a lot of years since then. We've lived a lot of years since then. We've read a lot of tweets since then read a lot of think pieces since then and i'm uh having uh feelings but instead of sharing mine immediately i will ask you key uh <laughs> since this has been i think very taxing on you how are how are you feeling about all honestly this? it's not even that it's taxing it's that it's just like it's i've had to check out in a way that i don't like where like you know and that's unfortunate but i just cannot be as plugged into this stuff as like I have been in the past and that kind of is what it is, especially because like the film world is like something that has been maybe an escape for me, maybe just like an interest of mine in a way that 
has made this last couple months sort of challenging. Um, but yeah, so it's been an interesting time. It's been a time where I've found solace in other non-Harry related things, which we'll discuss at the end of the, the show. And, you know, I'm still big fan of Harry. Love him. Love that as it was is doing great. Keep the narratives going for the Grammy campaign. All supportive there. But yeah, it's been, I won't, I won't pretend that it's been my favorite couple months ever, mostly because the internet is terrible but yeah that's the way it's always been so you know it is what it is what about you i guess for me like there was a point in time um in early september when harry had just gotten to new york for his residency and he'd either only performed once or he hadn't performed yet and he went out to dinner when exiting the restaurant there was like a swarm of paparazzi and there was video of this swarm that surfaced online and it looked like it looked like a movie the part of a movie in like a like a rock or you know film star biopic when the person on the screen realizes that they're like famous for real you know what i mean mm. Um, where they've like broken into the big time and I was like watching this clip and there had already at that point been like a couple of weeks of conversation about his Rolling Stone profile because some of the way that was processed there were some mixed reactions to it some of which we'll probably talk a little bit about in our My Policeman episode and some probably not because some people's opinions are stupid but I still remember that video and I was like Harry is like the biggest thing in the world Like, that was really the moment where I was like, Harry is the biggest thing in the world. And for me, as somebody who had kind of a couple of years ago, (laughs) like on record said, I think Harry is about to become the biggest thing in the world. It was one thing for me to predict that and another thing to start experiencing it emotionally. And I have a lot of mixed feelings about it because I think it's really exciting to be a fan of somebody who's in their prime and to kind of be like living through Harry mania to experience it like like Beatlemania you know in New York City they you know sold out of boas at like party stores in New York City (laughs) like it's nuts here but then to also see him be criticized so harshly in a way that like corresponds with the primary gender of his fan base and like you know the way that he chooses to dress and behave and stuff and and some some of the negative reactions that come from him being so visible and such like a like a, a, a symbol to so many people the way that you become a symbol when you're not only the biggest thing in the world but when you're just starting to become the biggest thing in the world because people are still kind of trying to figure out like what to make of you So um, I guess for me, I have like a kind of two-pronged approach to that, which is one, I find it like really um, emotionally overwhelming and like my mixture of like excitement going to hang out with my friends and then the distress of seeing people being hypercritical. That's a lot of like the one side of that. And then the other side of that that I feel is this, (laughs) this kind of like detached clinical like amateur historian that's inside of me going man like like in like 15 years this is gonna be pretty cool right (laughs) you know so yeah i wish i had the ability to like step back and have that view of it but i i do have 
issues doing that. So I can only really step back, you know, now and kind of try and have some sort of detached perspective on it. But it is it's difficult for sure. It is difficult. Um, And I think that just because I'm very interested in history and I read a lot of history that I can get some of that perspective and it does help me get through it. But yeah, I'm not I I'm not like he I uh, listen to podcasts that are like long form reads of world history and I'm not listening to film podcasts right now so Key has been <laughs> going through it <laughs> I haven't even been going through it I've just been like you know throwing myself into other stuff so if you want to talk to me about uh, the comic slash graphic novel series The Sandman uh, I'm available <laughs> for that <Yeah. laughs> so we all we all have our different ways that we handle things but yeah so it's been a time, there's just been a lot, it's been kind of overwhelming when you have people like at your workplace coming up to you and like, you know, unsolicited just being like, so what do you think of this thing that happened? It's just like, it's a lot, but yeah. I'm sure we're preaching to the choir in terms of everybody who's listening to us on that. So feel free to vent in our email inbox. If not, I think we can get into the film. I think so. Yeah, so before we start, we're just going to acknowledge that like this is going to be a little different than our typical episodes where we dissect every single element of you know a music video or, or something down to the tiniest detail, just because this is a movie with a thousand moving pieces, it's multiple hours long, we can't really do that. Um, yeah, so we're going to kind of start this episode out with a discussion on our viewing experiences of Don't Worry Darling and our feelings on what worked and what didn't in the film, and then we're going to kind of zero in on Harry specifically and its relationship the film's relationship to his career and stuff like that so yeah along the way we're gonna try and have a little fun um however yeah listeners who do desire a little bit more information on the nitty-gritty details of the film will be able to access it in the description of this podcast episode so you'll see a bunch of links down there with articles for you to read that'll break down like the costumes and the cinematography and and all that kind of stuff yeah Okay, so uh, before we get into our viewing experiences and uh, discussion, uh, for those who are fully unacquainted and uh, want to know, like, what is this film? um, (laughs) Uh, Welcome, I guess. (laughs) Welcome, I guess. So the general summary uh, is in the 1950s, Alice and Jack live in the idealized community of Victory, an experimental company town that houses the men who work on a top-secret project. While the husbands toil away, the wives get to enjoy the beauty, luxury, and debauchery of their seemingly perfect paradise. However, when cracks in her idyllic life begin to appear, exposing flashes of something sinister lurking below the surface, Alice can't help but question exactly what she's doing in Victory. So the film was uh, directed by Olivia Wilde. She is in the movie playing Alice's best friend, Bunny. Harry plays Alice's husband, Jack Chambers. And Florence Pugh is his wife, Alice Chambers. Other main cast members include Chris Pine, who plays the cult leader, Frank. Um, Kiki Lane, who plays Margaret, a friend who starts questioning the system before Alice. Uh, Gemma Chan, who plays Shelley, Frank's wife, and uh, Nick Kroll, who is Bunny's husband, and he's sort of tertiary, along with some other character actors who are great, but not really necessary to talk about. But even though he is tertiary, he does make a splash by getting hit by a car. Spoiler alert. (laughs) And kissing Harry. (laughs) So he's not unimportant either. Uh, You don't know what the context for it, like hitting the car so it's fine 
Um, <laughs> I feel like most of the people listening have definitely seen it. So Probably. I don't think we're, yeah. we need to worry. So viewing experiences, uh, Key, what was your first viewing experience of Don't Worry Darling? Yeah, so there's a lot of like hype around like, you know, fans are being rude in the theater type deal like before the movie ever released wide so i skipped work to see it on a on a friday (laughs) afternoon um because i wanted to see it with people acting normally and not have you know people being rude or anything impact my experience of the film and i can confirm that everybody in my screening was extremely normal to the level of which I did end up not missing. Like, I didn't want anybody to be rude, but I did. It's like, I did, I do, there's some part of me that's like, would it would it have been fun to see it, you know, if people are like screaming at the screen and like doing X, Y, Z. But yeah, saw it in the afternoon, middle of a work day. Um, didn't even come back to any Slack messages. So yeah, no complaints about that. What was your experience like? So I've seen Don't Worry Darling twice. Um, I had initially planned to see it at a movie theater on a Saturday in the afternoon because I too wanted to avoid you know just sort of the noisiness I can get distracted during movies so I just kind of wanted to avoid some of that but then everybody started seeing it and I was so antsy to see it I bought a ticket at this small theater and everybody was very chill there too. I went to an evening showing. Both times were excellent. I had so many Reese's pieces that weekend. <laughs> I had Crucial. Them, yeah. I, I snuck them into both movie theaters. God strike me down. And yeah, I mean, I, I had a really enjoyable time both times. I went with my girlfriend um, the second time and she had a great time too. We went to and one of the Angelica theaters in New York. So it, that was that was very, very fun. I, I did kind of consider seeing it a third time before this, but I just haven't had a chance to. So I might see it again. Alrighty. So yeah, so that can kind of lead us into our general like non-spoiler feelings and thoughts on the film. So we kind of wanted to just do this pretty quick again. Like we said before, like, you know, we assume that probably most of the people listening have seen it, but if you haven't got a chance to, we will be, you know, giving our general thoughts and feelings here and then getting into a spoiler review in a second. So yeah, great. What what were your kind of like very general thoughts on, on the movie? I think it's a pretty movie great execution of a lot of the stuff that it's trying to do i think it improves on rewatch at which i'll talk about a little bit later but some of the cognitive dissonance that you get on the rewatch i feel is really illuminating and i would highly recommend seeing it a second time i have been really fascinated by reactions from this movie because it seems like you could like you could russian roulette a friend group by bringing them to this movie like if you brought a group of like five people to the movie, two would love it, one would think it was fine, and then one would really dislike it, and then one like might not be your friend anymore. So, <laughs> wow. so you have to be careful. But uh, I, I don't usually see movies that are quite that polarizing. So that's I think been like really interesting. It certainly me- meant that I've seen like a lot of discussion about it and it's definitely made me think in detail about like what I come to the movie with and like what other people are bringing along with themselves when they watch the movie and stuff like Mm -hmm. that so how do you feel about it key yeah so I have complex feelings about it I guess I'll just say right off the top here that like it didn't totally work for me now I 
I'm going to say, you know, and caveat that by like, don't stop listening to the podcast because we'll talk about what worked for us both. We'll talk about what didn't work for us. Um, so we'll get into, you know, all the reasons why. And we're going to have some fun and, you know, have some fun categories there towards the end. So it's not just going to be, you know, with the, we're not doing like a formal film film review here, although we'll do, you know, we'll, we'll get into our thoughts as the episode goes on. But yeah, I it didn't totally work for me um, and the specific reasons why we'll get into throughout the episode. That doesn't mean I didn't enjoy it. I had a, you know, fine time watching it. I um, There's definitely a lot to talk about in terms of what works and things that I liked about it but yeah it just it wasn't to me in terms of like a thriller that's like I'm super involved in in every turn I'm like what's gonna happen next and I'm like gasping that's kind of like what you want and to me it didn't totally get there but yeah like I said things I enjoyed so we'll get into it throughout the show Hello, everybody. This is Editing Key. And yeah, I just wanted to say that when we get into the spoiler discussion of Don't Worry Darling, obviously the film contains some pretty serious themes and subject matter like misogyny, domestic violence, consent, violations of consent, things like that. So yeah, just be prepared that going into this spoiler discussion of the movie, those are things that we're going to touch on, uh, not super explicitly and not, you know, in graphic detail. But yeah, these are things that are going to come up. So yeah, hope you enjoy the discussion of the film. All right, bye. Okay, so warning, warning. This is the spoiler review. <laughs> Do not pass after this point if you don't want them. You have been warned. <laughs> okay, let's start out with uh, what worked. So, Key, what worked for you? Yeah, so I think like the most obvious thing is just the visuals of the film. Like it's just a very stylish movie and, you know, you can say that from like the clothes people wear and the costumes and the general aesthetic of the movie, but just the way it's shot, like the cinematography, just the craft elements of it and that contribute to the look really worked for me, especially, you know, in the victory scenes. Um yeah, so like that kind of element of it, how how all of that kind of came together to produce that setting, I think really worked. What were your thoughts on kind of like those visual elements? Yeah, I mean, the production design, cinematography, and costumes were all gorgeous. I mean, there everybody was the, the best in the biz. Production designer uh, was the same production designer for Zola, uh, the cinematographer... I is already work like already worked on another high profile film, The Whale, this year. So he's like out of this world. Um, I felt like the direction of the movie generally was good. The artistic vision behind the visuals in this movie and the way that the themes are expressed is so consistent and so strong. You can feel the lifeblood of of this movie. I thought the performances were all really good. I thought Harry mm-hmm. was really good. What did you think? Yeah, I think I, I I thought all the performances were good too. I thought Harry was good. I thought I still, you know, I have, and this is like totally not on him. This is entirely with me. I have like this little thing with him where it's like, I'm just, I am just distracted by the fact that it's him a little bit. You know, I try not to be, and I will say that this happened a lot less for me in this film than it did for Dunkirk, I think, because he's a lead character, and so you can get more invested in, like, who he is, and it's easier to grasp on. Whether it's in Dunkirk, he's not featured that much, so he stands out a little bit more to me. Yeah, but I thought I thought it was good. I thought especially in the scenes at the beginning of the movie where they're kind of like, like, like it could almost be a rom-com, obviously, if it wasn't being interrupted by, like, 
you know, creepy dancer faces. Like, I, you know, like all the stuff with him and Florence at the beginning when it's mm-hmm. the two of them and like him at the party, like all of that I thought really, really worked. And yeah, so his his performance overall worked for me. And I will say, um, because I saw the film a second time, his performance really like deepened on rewatch for me because watching it, like I, I, to give you the kind of person that I am, I did know the twists going into the thriller because like that's never broken suspense or anything for me to know, like in theory, what happens in something. But to actually see Harry as like present day incel Jack and then to rewatch the movie the experience is like really unnerving because now you're watching Harry, but you know like what incel Jack looks and behaves like. So mm. you're watching that, you realize you're watching that type of person pretend to be the type of person that he thinks that he should be in the regular world. And it really deepens the performances and is extremely horrifying and unnerving. And I love it so much. I really want to see it a third time so that I can like, because the first time I was like really caught up in the Harry Styles dating simulator of it. And the second time, second time I was like frozen in horror that like seeing him because I was like, I know that you're this, but then I, you know, you read his actions and like a whole different light and you see different parts of like incel jack like peek out in the performance and yeah i don't know i thought he was i thought he was really really good and i i have noticed that some reviewers who've seen it twice have mentioned that like this is how they feel too so i'm not crazy or alone like (laughs) yeah i haven't seen it twice so i can't verify that aspect of it but but yeah no he he's amazing in this movie I loved the characters. I thought they were strong and memorable, but I don't think that Key agrees. So we will talk to that when we move into the agree or disagree part, I suppose. Yeah, it's just hard when, you know, a lot of your film is premised upon the fact that it's a simulation where the pe like you're not completely 100% buying into the actual characters but yeah like Grace said we'll get into that in a second but yeah. to, just to speak to I don't think just to go back to some of the stuff we already talked about like we talked about the visuals a little bit I want to return to that just because like I, I just think of the the blood visual when Alice like touches whatever that thing is that I assume is like bringing her you know what what about what do i what am i is there like a term for like the thing that she touches it's actually a house is it a house okay it's a house a house that she touches that blood visual i thought was really like kind of unique and like interesting and then you know you've got of course the repeating dancers motif which i think was like an interesting choice and we can you know think through that as we have this conversation and then you have like the moment with Florence in the bathtub where like she moves and her reflection doesn't like there's like these little visual touches like that that I think really do work I just want to shout out Olivia specifically because you know I I love Booksmart her first film it's like really special to me and I think you can tell too that there's like just a really strong visual sense of style in that movie as well mm-hmm. and so it's kind of cool to see that track in such a different way because this movie is so different aesthetically and you know obviously it's a completely different genre but it's just you know such a different type of film and like mm-hmm. while Booksmart does work a lot better for me as a movie I think that strong like sense of style visually from Olivia is is present in both and so mm-hmm. yeah I think that's that's definitely something to shout out for sure yeah i think that everything that the production team and olivia herself bring to the to the script basically has only served to 
improve it at least from my perspective so yeah i I didn't read the original script so i can't speak to that at all but i i have to i have to give them credit and i guess uh i guess i say that because i am sort of segging into the fact that like for me in regards to like incel culture and like weird dudes on the internet (laughs) i'm like low-key a little bit fascinated by them and so when i saw the movie was going to not only discuss incels and weird like men cults on the internet but also brought like a surprising amount of like empathy to the seductiveness of cults like for me that's really what made the movie work for me was the the empathy of the movie i don't know i and i i think that that's not something that worked for everybody but for me that is ultimately really what makes the movie work for me is not necessarily that I'm like the most tied to the twists and turns ever, but the fact that I'm seeing so much empathy, even for somebody doing like the darkest of actions and the idea that like regular people can get sucked into doing just like monstrous things because good parts of them can be warped and exploited and the way that love for another human being can be corrupted by these forces baked into our society, sort of manipulated by essentially, you know, con men. Just just the way that I felt like that was honestly treated with empathy was really striking to me and is a really like underrated element of the film. And we will talk about that a little bit later as well. But um for me, I think that aside from the production design and the costumes and performances, what ultimately makes this film work for me is that I think it's a really strikingly empathetic film by the end of the end of the movie, even though I do think that Jack also gets exactly what he deserves. So yeah, I, I find it I find it really fascinating for that reason. And just sort of the way I, I, I find I find honestly the way that it views gender to be quite nuanced. So I really appreciate that as well. So anything else to say about what worked for you or anything like that? Yeah, I'll just throw some random stuff out here. So Harry's accent, which yes, this is a dig at like the weird internet reaction that for some reason people decided that his accent was bad. It's it's not. Like, he literally just talks throughout the whole movie in his normal accent, and it's totally fine, and it's not weird at all. And then he briefly has an American accent, which also I thought was totally fine. And I was, like, really worried going in. I was like, oh, God, is he going to do an American accent? Like, is it going to be bad? I thought it was totally fine, and it perfectly serviceable. Didn't take me out of the film at all, so. People are so weird about how he talks. Like, <laughs> Yeah, like, it's unfortunate. He, he's just never sounded weird to me. Like, I feel like he just talks the way he talks, I just see people going, like, insane and treating him like he's talking like an alien or putting on some accent. And it's just never seemed weird to me. The yeah, way that it's, he it's very weird. It's literally just his normal voice. So I don't know what was up with that, but I, I thought he sounded totally fine. Never took mm-hmm. me out of it. I want to give a shout out to Gemma Chan stabbing Chris Pine. That specific, very short moment in the film. I just, like, when that happened in the movie, I was like, nice. <laughs> um and i enjoyed it and then i will i just want to shout out that you know that opening sequence where they're playing the game at that dinner party it again it it reminds me of book smart when she creates these 
these party scenes where there's like overlapping dialogue and like everybody is comfortable with each other and like you have like that part where like harry kisses nick Kroll, then you have you have like the humor of the film like you know there's like some jokes throughout where you have like that joke about harry being ugly where you know i think it's asif ali is like you know says something about like yeah yeah sure you're hideous you know and like the comedy of that scene where harry's like bad at cooking and he's like trying to cook stuff for out like all that stuff did work for me and i was pretty charmed by it so and it and it wasn't like i don't know what i expected going in but like those little moments i thought were were, were nice so was that something that you'd kind of clocked as well when you were watching it yeah i really liked the humor in the movie i don't know i i really i really liked the movie in general i thought that the character interactions were really good and and tense and interesting I didn't really get the deal of Gemma Chan stabbing Chris Pine, honestly. Oh, yeah. When I say that it worked for me, I don't mean that I understand what was totally happening there. I just, <laughs> the moment in isolation as an image really worked for me. Ah, um, okay. Yeah, I don't, if you asked me, like, definitively, and I think there's ambiguity, and Olivia said that there's ambiguity to the ending of the film and, like, that you can read things in different ways. I don't pretend that i have like a fully developed understanding of like thematically what that moment signifies but yeah i enjoyed the image yeah okay let's talk about what didn't work what didn't work for yuki okay so yeah i guess we're kind of dancing around it so i'll just say like the the premise of the film it kind of has a gargantuan task right where it just makes it really difficult for me to like in terms of what i like in in movies for it to succeed where it's like you have this whole premise where none of these characters are like actually experiencing what they're experiencing they're all just experiencing it virtually but you don't know that until a certain point in the film and so that whole setup of like a virtual reality or like a simulation is just very like i think it's difficult to nail and so I, I struggled with that at different points in the, in the movie in terms of like investing in the characters when I could tell that like there's like a, you know, a second level to everything they're doing, investing in the characters when you don't totally know like what about them is real or not, you know, explaining certain people's actions in the movie with, okay, is that because this thing happened? It's just like that whole premise of a simulation is something that I think is very difficult to nail. So I, I struggle with that a little bit. What about you? Yeah, um, I, I guess I have mixed feelings about that because I do understand the feeling that like, you know, the weight to it maybe isn't as much for you. For me, I feel like the experience, the simulation in the second watch knowing that everything is a simulation the entire way and not just like knowing it but like knowing what is outside of the simulation and like Mm. actually seeing it with your own eyes it adds like it 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 makes a second watch through the movie for me it was like very emotionally polarizing because i was suddenly extremely aware that like a horrifying situation was happening outside of all of the quote-unquote like fun and enjoyment and like understanding different things about the world by having that like dual understanding like understanding the subtle things of like some of the wives have like trapped there and they're not like related to the people 
in real life. Like it kind of, it just adds, for me, it definitely adds rather than takes away. Although I do have some nitpicks, which we will, we will get to, but I don't know. I just, I, I think that for keeping it as the original pitch, which was as, you know, a simulation pitch, I think that they did probably as well as they could have done with it. I don't know if like, I don't know if I have personally any edits for the movie that would improve it as a simulation movie. Do you know what I mean? Right. And I mean, that's kind of what I'm saying is that I think there's kind of a ceiling to that idea that's really difficult to nail. And I think what what is going to determine whether it succeeds or not, because I can think of like episodes of Black Mirror, for example. And I mean, that's kind of a cliche in itself where like people can use that kind of as an insult. But I don't know, there's certain episodes of Black Mirror that I really like that kind of do use that effectively. But I think, you know, what what makes that work is if you can feel you can really grab onto those characters and the suspense of it, which is another thing for me that like kind of fell flat. And so that's really crucial in a thriller, right? At least for me, where I'm like, you know, you want to kind of fall into it and be turning with the movie and seeing, oh, what's going to happen? And like, what's hard is like, Don't Worry Darling had an amazing trailer. Like I really Mm -hmm. thought that the trailer for the film was really good. I think because it can walk that line in such a short amount of time of like, oh, here's this perfect life, but like something's wrong, but you don't know what it is, right? But when you have all this time to fill in the film, you know, it, it becomes it, it becomes kind of a difficult feat. And so that has to be something that is nailed with pacing. And, it, and there's like all these different other elements that can contribute mm-hmm. to that. Where like, I think I'd have to check, like, I'd be interested to see to watch the movie again and like time the first time that like something you know, is a miss or whatever in the film, but it, it has to be pretty early on, right? It's it has really to be like early. The first ten minutes of the movie, so it's that too was early. Yeah, yeah. That, that was that was. I think one of my biggest issues with it is like right from the beginning, you know that something's not right. So instead of you being shocked that like something is wrong, it, you, what you're asking is like, oh, what is actually going on here? That's like mm-hmm. what the movie wants you to ask, right? So. You know, and that's being done with the soundtrack going really hard from the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. There's there's like creepy elements of the soundtrack even from the beginning of the film. You have that that imagery with the dancers that's kind of creepy, and and so right from the beginning, you're kind of like you're not supposed to trust victory. You're not really mm-hmm. supposed to trust that environment, which is hard because like a lot of my favorite parts of the movie are from that 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 first section where you're with these characters in this town, which I I wanted to invest in and I wanted to believe in it, but there's all these things in the movie that are telling you like <laughs> there's something going on here that that you mm-hmm. don't understand, right? And so I I rubbed up against that a little bit. I do think that some of the pacing can be odd and I think part I think possibly like and I almost never say this about movies uh, but I think that like this movie probably could have been a little bit longer and ironed some things out because they could have moved some of the pacing you know down the line a little bit and I also think that it's a high budget movie on a mid-budget and so I think that maybe they had been given a little bit more time hadn't been filmed during covid maybe a little bit more money maybe it'd be paced a little differently but i also don't make movies so i could also yeah who can say i i think what's just hard is like for me and this is too i'm interested to hear like if listeners have the same experience like i also knew going in that like 
incel harry was going to be a thing like i i wasn't fully spoiled i didn't know it was a simulation at all in fact i was like i guess what i thought what i imagined is that these women were like brainwashed and kidnapped or something they were like actually in a physical place is what i assumed Mm -hmm. but i knew that there was going to be some element where it was like incels were involved that one photo of harry with like the beard and like the long hair had leaked like way before the movie came out so i went in like sort of knowing that and so like that's like again not i don't know how fair that is to like hold that up against the movie i would have rather gone in knowing absolutely nothing but you're waiting for that the whole time and like is it going to be as shocking or interesting as like you want it to be and so for me i thought that the reveal was like you know shot well and i thought it was interesting but for me it didn't quite it's not like it didn't fully like wow me in the way that i wanted you know and that's like a personal thing like i'm thrilled for the people that it did wow but you want like at least for me i would want that moment where it's like you're waiting this whole time okay what's wrong what's wrong and then it's revealed and you want to be like oh my god like it all makes sense now and that's like not totally how i felt does that make sense yeah i will be honest that even though i knew the twist was coming the shot when where alice was like a surgeon walking out i went oh so i uh, i am possibly easily entertained I am intrigued in a version of the script where the answer is and that it's a simulation, but I do think that that is a whole other can of worms that could also... I don't know. I, I, I do like the product that we got a lot, and I do think it's possible that this is definitely the best version of itself, but I don't know. I, I'm not sure. I, listeners, I'm not a movie reviewer. I'll be, I'll be level with you. Yeah, I'm not either. As many podcasts as I listen to, like we're, we're just <laughs> sharing our opinions here. Yeah, we're grateful that you're along with the ride with us. But uh, I guess my last comment is some of the open endedness works for me. Like, did Alice escape? Is the Victory Project gone now? What happens next? And some doesn't like. Why does Shelley stab Frank? I'm not sure if that really works for me. Jack managing to get a job and afford the Victory Project. I'm not sure where this happened. I had thought that like he worked for the Victory Project, but I actually don't think that he does. So I don't know. I got the impression that they like work, that they're like toiling in some job that they hate out out in the outside world, you know, that's yeah. paying for it. But like, but. but like the whole thing was that he was emasculated because he lost his job. Right. So I don't know. I guess we won't know. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, yeah, so some of the open-endedness worked for me and some of it left some questions. But I've also experienced this with every open-ended movie. So it's also not a major flaw for me. Although I, I know people who disagree and who really don't like that it's open-ended. So... There's a lot about this movie that's very personal preference, I think. Yeah, and like narrative ambiguity isn't something that really bothers me. It's more that like there are, and maybe this can let us kind of lead a little bit into like talking about the simulation, um, which we're going to nitpick a little bit. So apologies if that's annoying. You can just simply fast forward through it. Like this, this section will be demarcated in the description, but it is called nitpicking <laughs> the simulation uh, just because honestly like and we're not doing this to single out like olivia's directing or the film or anything we're being film bros about this i've seen this done with all sorts of films from the dark knight rises to please don't compare us to cinema scenes because i really don't i really don't (laughs) want that i don't you know like i'm not doing this to and i 
I'll start <laughs> by saying this. Like, generally, people like nitpicking stuff like annoys the shit out of me. So, like, that's not why I'm doing this. What I'm struggling with is like the the movie's asking you to buy into this idea that like it's all a simulation and so for me to buy into that like i think i need to understand the shape of that and to be able to like you know believe that that is the reality for these characters and so there are just certain elements of it that make it difficult for me to like fully understand everything because i'm like why does that work that way so that's kind of like you know where i'm coming from on this section but yeah when when key got back from the movie I kind of, I liked the movie so much that after I got out of it that Thursday, I was like, I don't think that Key's going to like Don't Worry Darling. <laughs> because Key and I are very different people and we have pretty different tastes in film, I think. They do sometimes intersect, but like we we are quite different people. And so I got out of it and I was like, ah, man, I don't think he's going to like it. <laughs> and so, and so uh, when he got out of his shelling all he could think about was he was trying to do like simulation logistics i just our i think that speaks to the <laughs> fact that i i wasn't as connected to the characters yeah. as i wanted to be because if you're like super involved in the emotional lives of jack and alice like i think that you're not thinking about that so it i think it does speak to something which is unfortunate which is that i wasn't as fully involved in the characters lives as i wanted to be and i i don't think that's a reflection on the performances again like i think like you know obviously in the moment as you're watching the movie you're like oh i i don't want bad things to happen to these people or like i want this to happen i want this to happen whatever but i yeah i you know the fact that i'm even thinking like okay what is this rule does speak to i i wish that i didn't care about that but it, it was you know i'm not gonna lie it was something that i was thinking of and the main thing is like one of the key emotional moments in the movie it should be like a huge emotional climax is when she kills jack and like bunny just drops a line in there where she's like when the men die in the simulation they die in real life the implication being that like the women don't right and, and then she's then she's like you have to get out or they'll kill your body in the real world. And the first time I saw the movie, I didn't process the second part. So I was just like, well, everybody in the simulation, if they die in the simulation, they die in real life. But that's not the case. Right. For so some reason, only the men do. And I don't understand why. And I don't understand why in a male dominated patriarchal created simulation, why they would make it so that the men like die when they die in this meal like i just i just struggle with it and that might seem like a stupid like little thing but i just like it's a key emotional moment in the film and so you should be thinking like oh my god she just killed him and like there's striking visuals in that where she like has the blood on her apron or whatever but like i'm thinking like you know bunny's character says that line and i'm thinking like wait what like what does that mean like i you know but it is what it is but i feel like definitely they could have just made it consistent by making it the rule for everybody. So I'm not really sure why. Yeah, I mean, there's complications there with like how... Well, I, I, okay, I actually do know why. And it's kind of horrifying, which is that like, there is a sort of horror to it. And that I'm pretty sure the reason that the women don't die in the simulation when you kill them in the simulation is because it's a male-dominated simulation so if you hurt your wife enough, she is still not going to die in the simulation. So the men can just do whatever they want to the wives and not have to worry about it. Yeah, um, that is really dark. 
then my question yeah. would be like, why does anybody do- like? I just don't understand why. Like, it's a right. simulation. No, like, so why I do you don't, die? I don't. At all? I don't why understand. Anybody, right? Like, I think the reason is because they need to jack to die in that moment, which right. isn't a super satisfying answer to me personally. But yeah. you know, mileage may vary. No, but I feel like I feel like if there had been like a little bit more time or something setting it up somewhere, I feel like like in like in the scene where Jack he's signing up for the victory project and like assigning his nationality they could have given him like a little uh, like a few more rules in that scene instead of bunny being like hey these are the rules like i'm not sure why they didn't just like yeah if it had been seated earlier i feel like it would have felt less awkward to me than to have that rule just like stated out blatantly like that kind of randomly in the moment when it needed to be but at the same time, I found it very satisfying for him to die. So yeah, and it uh, was like I, I, <laughs> I it, it comes from me wanting to feel that in that moment, right? Like again, I'm not nitpicking it to like you know shit on anybody. It's more that like you want in that moment to be thinking like, yes, what a moment! Like she finally did this, like and ended it. But I was like, wait, what? Like what? What did Bunny just say? Like <laughs> what? What does that mean? Like I was like distracted by it. So that's not what you. That's not where you want to be emotionally in the, in that moment in the film. So yeah, no, definitely. It's just one of those things that that didn't really work for me. But it's fine if yeah. other people do not care. So like the electroshock and pills. Is there anything happening outside of the simulation during that, or is it like, is it just like a selling point that like if your wife misbehaves like we'll just like like period accurate electroshock her for funsies like is that the deal i mean i not with period realistic drugging your wife yeah i didn't totally get that this is where another like another watch probably could answer some of these questions for me but like i i struggle with that too where now that i'm like this is a simulation okay so they went back and like reset her but yeah it's not totally clear to me either yeah, I feel like that could have been clarified, maybe. I thought that the movie was going to end when she comes back, like when she yeah. gets like reset and then comes back into the Victory Project. Like, I really thought that that's when the movie was going to end. And I was like, hmm, that's mm-hmm. interesting. And then that didn't happen. So that, <laughs> but that was a thought that I had. I, I, I had that feeling too. And then I was like, I was like, I don't think that that's right. Well, you were uh, right because it was not. I, but. And I was right. Okay. So, surely there was a way to give Alice water that wasn't squeezing a dirty rag into her mouth, right? Like, I think was, this like, is speaking to, to Jack that. being not a very, you know, thoughtful, concerned partner. But He doesn't even put celery in the tuna that he eats. <laughs> he doesn't put any mayonnaise, no salt or pepper. What is wrong with this man? A lot, a lot is wrong. A lot. Oh my god. You know, I ate a tuna sub that week, and I really was sitting here thinking, like, I'm just like, I'm just like him. <laughs> Hopefully not, <laughs> but. <laughs> it seems to me like you could have sold a VR version of The Sims and gotten the same result. Like, I, I feel like, I feel like Frank, you know, like, he didn't have to trap women. He could have just been like, I made a new VR game. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, like, that I think is like kind of picking at the <laughs> the foundation of the film itself. But um, yeah, I mean, Frank, it seems like you went through a lot of trouble to do something that just ended in your death. So I think the uh, the thinking there wasn't super sound. It wasn't part. there. Um, any other nitpicks before we move on? I don't think I have any other nitpicks. It's 
I I guess there's just some things that I don't totally understand, which is like what's happening, like when the men are running to her at the end in the red jumpsuits, like what does that actually mean? Like what's gonna like I I like don't totally get that. Um, I know there's like some narrative ambiguity there where Olivia was like, it's actually up for the audience's interpretation if like Alice actually survives and like escapes at the end. I, d- I didn't really like when I watched it, I was just like, oh, she escapes because there's that scene of her dancing, which I, I didn't enjoy. Like I thought that that was like kind of well seated in there and well shot. Um, yeah, I just like you want again, like I want in that moment to be totally absorbed in it and be like, oh my God, she needs to get to that thing. But I'm thinking like, this isn't real. So like, there's those guys in the jumpsuits and like what does that mean like if they get to her and stop her like what happens like i it's i and the idea i know is that like that she if she wakes up somebody's gonna come after her and like you know she has to escape before somebody like comes and like does something bad to like her real body but yeah there's just like I was thinking about things I didn't want to think about in that moment because I'm like, I'm not totally sure what this is like actually supposed to represent in the real world. I don't know. It's more more issues with the simulation of it all, but I don't want to keep beating that that dead horse. But um, yeah, I hope that nobody like thinks I'm trying to shit on anybody or anything. It's 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 more just like, you know, I you know, you go into something obviously wanting to like it and to be wrapped up in it. And then sometimes that happens and that's great and sometimes it doesn't quite work for you in the way you want and that's fine so i just felt that i would take this opportunity in the podcast to kind of try to work through some of those you know thoughts and and reasons why that didn't happen for me but um i'm happy for anybody who loved the film and who it worked really well for so and uh one of those people was me (laughs) so he feels happy for me i do it's true uh yes oh that's so sweet okay so, because the next section is a little heavy, we'll be talking about the themes, we're going to first detour a little bit into some fun Harry-related film trivia. So, Harry Styles is canonically not bald. <laughs> uh, if there was any doubt. His hair was uh, impossible to make lank and lifeless, so they had to, like... They had to, like, engineer a wig special just to make his hair look ugly. <laughs> That's how beautiful and voluminous his hair is. Yeah, we got long-haired Harry again, but at what yeah, cost? At what cost? At what cost? Yeah, hair and makeup, they, it's, it's so funny. Uh, we'll be linking some articles, but yeah, hair and makeup have given several interviews being like, Harry was a real challenge in hair and makeup because he's just so beautiful. The hair stuff cracks me up because it does kind of read as like a propaganda campaign if you were bald. <laughs> like people having quotes about like how they how you know how it's impossible to make his hair not voluminous. It's like it's a little it's laying on a little thick, you know. He's laying on a little thick. It's like come on. <laughs> Key is still wrapping the hairy Where's the toupee conspiracy? I'm not. I never have been, <laughs> and I really resent that you'd suggest that, frankly. <laughs> oh my god, listeners. The way that I laughed when I learned that apparently Kid Harpoon sends Harry articles about how he might be bald <laughs> every day. <laughs> that was a great quote in Rolling Stone Music Now when Kid was like, and why aren't people, and nobody's asking if I'm bald, which is frankly a more pressing concern. I'm like... <laughs> Oh, kid. Oh, kid harpoon. 
Okay, so the kiss between Nick Kroll and Harry, both in the movie and in Venice, was entirely spontaneous. Uh, They just had the good vibes, and one thing led to another, and they gave each other a little smooch. We love to see it. Yes. What's funny is I I noted this to Key, but listeners who may be longtime listeners know that in our very first episode, uh, we talked about Harry winning Hitmaker of the Year for Variety, and Nick Kroll had introduced him in the Variety Hitmaker event, and he was like joking about how Harry was involved in his marriage, and he's a generous lover, and he's in a throuple with his wife, and all this stuff. And this was like mid-production on Don't Worry Darling. This was in late November or early December. And uh, we learn in the Entertainment Weekly profile that the first scene in the movie where they kiss was the last scene filmed, which means that for the entire production, they're just playing gay chicken with each other, and one thing led to another, and they had this beautiful moment the last day on set. <laughs> yeah, never heard a more Harry Styles set story in my life, frankly. <laughs> which, which I just thought was, I thought was delightful. Suddenly became real. Good for them. So um, Harry apparently wrote the song with you all the time, and he wrote it in five minutes. He said uh, it had a homemade nursery rhyme feel to it certainly is in your head after watching the movie because they how many times does florence sing it like five hundred thousand times it's a lot of times yeah finally i just felt that this is necessary to note so variety asked harry about his tap dancing scene in the movie and he answered all of variety's questions in email because this is in olivia wilde's uh, profile um for the movie And when he was asked about his tap dancing, apparently the literal words that came out of his fingers were, "'Twas I tap dancing. I feel like I've been waiting for someone to require a 35-second tap routine from me my whole life." So, first of all, it makes it way better that he typed that out and didn't say it. (laughs) But also, can I just say, I find it, like, he says it's 35 seconds long. It felt like so much longer than that to me in yeah, the movie. I know. Like, it's a really long scene. It's a long scene. He tap dances for a long time. I don't think that it's only 35 seconds. I think that he's just bullshitting. <laughs> we'll have to time it when it comes out on HBO Max. Are we ready? We're ready! all right so we did have some technical difficulties there um so hopefully we don't sound too different than you last heard us but it is not a week later (laughs) yeah totally not a week later and everything is absolutely fine um so yeah so we're just gonna get right into the movie's themes and uh gray do you want to kind of just take us through like why you kind of wanted to frame these as explicitly as we're gonna do and uh yeah start from there yeah so i don't really know how much our listeners uh read film criticism or read music criticism like reviews but also sort of discussion pieces um about harry's work but i tend to read them 
And when I was reading reviews of Don't Worry Darling and criticism that people are paid to write about (laughs) Don't Worry Darling, I noticed that it is shockingly terrible. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Way to make words there. Yeah. Listeners who have been reading the criticism uh, will know that typically a Don't Worry Darling review or any sort of analysis will start out with um, two paragraphs manufacturing quote-unquote drama that amounts to certain former cast members leaking text messages and certain other cast members not posting enough about the movie on Instagram. And while I'm sure that uh, some of our listeners may find that to be fascinating, I don't really. (laughs) And I am far more concerned with actually engaging with the movie. And so once you scroll past those two paragraphs, you tend to find that the obsession with the behind the scenes of this movie uh, tends to influence the way that people talk about this movie, which is people... Uh, don't take it very seriously or they downplay its themes or you know they've read enough interviews with Olivia that they feel that they've seen all of the themes listed out for them so they don't need to engage with it anymore and it's basic and they just don't care so when I was building out this document that we use for the podcast I was like I think that we need to talk about these themes because Mm. If you are like me, uh, you will have found that they're just like not talked about well and not talked about anywhere, including maybe by critics that you usually trust, critics that you would want to dig into the meat of this film in a really thoughtful way are just not engaging with it on its own terms. So yeah, I guess that's the long way around saying that I just wanted to talk about this films themes even though that's unusual for film podcasts i have heard uh, <laughs> according to key because key listens to film podcasts i listen to podcasts about history and educational things that are probably boring to a lot of our audience so yeah um, and we yeah. have different tastes and i'm sure that our listeners can tell that by this episode too um but <laughs> But yeah, I, I, I think that was a good place to start this discussion because I think it's 100% true. And I think like even like, you know, and I, again, like, forgive me also if I'm repeating myself here at all. It's hard to know since we took a little gap in between recording our first half of the episode and now, like, you know, exactly what we've said. So I'll do my best to not repeat myself. But I think like there are a lot of things that I like about this movie and there are some things that I don't. And I, I think like regardless of how well the movie worked for you, like... I think there is a lot in there to discuss thematically and a lot that Olivia, you know, was trying to say with this film and what the script was trying to say. And so I think like, you know, yeah, regardless of how well the movie worked for you on multiple levels, I think it's important to kind of take that seriously and, you know, talk about what the movie's trying to do and take that on its face and like really discuss that. So yeah, I think that it totally makes sense as a point to to have in this conversation. So great. Where do you want to start on this? Like, there's a lot of different themes we could we could start out here. Like, what about heterosexuality? There's certainly a lot of a lot of heterosexuality in the movie. Maybe we can start there. Oh, so much heterosexuality <laughs> in this movie. Yes, I think that one of the major themes of this movie is 
heterosexuality. And I think when we say that, we are talking about heterosexuality as like an institution, not like, you know, individual sexual individual, orientation. Yeah. Individual sexual orientation. So um, the world of victory is a compulsively heterosexual world where people are, you know, essentially coerced into heterosexual lives. Um, the characters live these existences that are so comfortably heterosexual that they can kiss their same gender friends with abandon and say that their same gender friends are sexy with abandon, which I do find really fascinating. And yeah, I I think that in some ways, uh, the film dealing with heterosexuality as an institution I've seen make some people uncomfortable because it ties into another major theme of the film, uh, I think, which is consent under subjugation. Yeah, and I do sure. think I do think a, a fascinating question this film poses that I think is kind of rare to ask, but it is at a certain point how much of compulsory heterosexuality is consensual even if it's like this idealized you know fantasy world can you consent to this system if it is hurting you yeah no i think like consent is such an enormous like underline of this movie even just from like that frankly like chilling moment at the end when jack is just like grabbing alice and like you know Mm -hmm will not let her go until she like finally has to just kill him before he mm-hmm. lets her go and like i in that moment was a little surprised at how at then how the movie kind of concretized the themes of consent in that moment because everything leading up to that is like is what you were talking about in terms of coercion where like alice doesn't know and doesn't understand that it's happening and so then mm-hmm. you know in a way it's like almost cath- like I don't know, it's complicated and painful to like watch that play out in a more explicit way at the end of the film, but at the same time I'm I, I am kind of glad that it does because yeah, this this whole time it's kind of been this thing where like she doesn't really understand what is happening to her, so she can't really make mm-hmm. decisions about it and she can't really say no in a way that's like informed. And so to then have that moment at the end of the movie where she's able to do that is like is um yeah, I think it's an interesting way to kind of like pull it all together there towards the end of the of the film. Yeah. And I think that seeing this film twice too was a really interesting experience and forgive me if I forgot what I said a week ago and I'm repeating <laughs> myself. Uh, <laughs> uh this listeners, this is my fault that we are re-recording because when we were recording the themes last week, I forgot to press play in our audio. So this is my fault. You heard it first, you guys. I never have done anything <laughs> wrong in my life. So glad that that streak continues. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that something uh, so interesting about watching this film twice is the first time I was so taken in by victory and the sumptuousness of it and even though I I knew the twist I hadn't really like seen incel jack yet and I hadn't I hadn't physically like viscerally experienced any of this stuff Mm. the second time I watched the film you can sort of see incel jack pretending to be 
Jack Jack in the way that the performance is. And so you're watching these sorts of things and you are watching the dynamics of their relationship and you start to realize that even when Alice is being coerced, it's always in this way where Alice is always doing what Jack wants, even when she is being, you know, theoretically treated like this princess. Like, it's always sex when Jack wants it, not really caring when Alice wants it. Mm. It's, you know, oh, he's making dinner for her, but oopsie daisy, he's just this dumb man. (laughs) You know what I mean? All these ways that consent is disregarded in the relationship um when i say you know compulsory heterosexuality i realize that that might maybe only be familiar to some of our queer listeners but essentially like what i what i'm saying here is the concept particularly that women are destined to be paired with men and to make men the centerfold of their lives Mm. and maybe they have these you know quote-unquote like superficial same gender relationships but at the end of the day they exist to serve this purpose to serve men so i think that like questioning if you can consent to that i do think that that theme makes some people uncomfortable um and i i did appreciate seeing it but that being said, I also don't think that this is like a men are evil movie, which I've also seen it painted as. I don't know if you a- agree with that, Key. You might you might feel differently, but I really I feel don't like... think that the thesis of the film is that men are evil. <laughs> yeah, I, I I just think that if you're going to accept the premise for the premise, then all of the men that we meet in the film have like chosen this for their partners which is like very fucked up but you know i i and and you're gonna have some very intelligent things to say here about like the film's openness and like empathy in the end towards the male characters but i i do think like it's also just you know an accepting of the premise of the film that it like like i'm trying to think of a way mm-hmm. in which like you're introducing just extraneous characters that aren't relevant to the plot like it's telling the story it's trying to tell and i think trying to read into Mm -hmm. that that all men are evil is just like like, what are people doing like you know but yeah i mean number one there's not that many people in victory yeah (laughs) um but yeah i i i found this film to be a remarkably empathetic film i still remember when we get the first shot of jack at the computer and i'm like oh okay when they say incel harry they mean like he's like <laughs> radicalized by like these podcasts which is something that i've you know seen talked about online and, and watched happen for you know quite some time uh, i i find uh the the manosphere you know the which is like the male dominated internet that is very concerned about hating women um which includes incels as well as other groups of men but i i already find that uh, aspect of the internet interesting just um subjectively as a as a queer person and objectively just as a facet of society and um i think that this film offers 
you know, a, a remarkably empathetic look into the ways that people are easily exploited by these underlying societal factors and by people calling on them and being like, oh, your life sucks, but boy, do I have an answer for you. It's we're, we're going to go back to the way things were and, uh, you know, back when times were good. And I find it really interesting to kind of explore it from that angle because in the original script, uh, Jack is very different. He's just a divorced, angry guy. There's no like online radicalization element and no Frank. He's just one-to-one. He's just this divorced guy. He wants to capture his ex-wife and trap her. And that's not how it, it works here. Um, if it if it had been how it worked here, I would have been like, ah, oh, this is like, this is not that great or even if jack had seemed like there was no element to him that alice had loved i think that i would have also been like yeah this is kind of shallow but to me you know there there being a specific trigger point that is exploited this emasculation that jack experienced both from losing his job and seeing his wife become the breadwinner Mm. um that being the spark that set him off into this world of you know selling him this idea that there is going to be a place where he can experience this life that he's not experiencing outside of the simulation um this happens all over the place to people who you know used to be kind of normal and then Jordan Peterson or Andrew Tate I was just reading a BuzzFeed news article about that I'm actually going to put in the link uh, of this podcast just because I think it's interesting but yeah just all of these you know influencers feeding off of this feeling of emasculation and sort of cultivating it for their own wealth and personal gain yeah, I, I guess it's just it's just a very empathetic way of looking at this monstrous thing that Jack chooses to do. And it's just a much more realistic way, I think, of looking at contemporary relationships. It's true. I think that's an interesting element of the movie for sure. And one that, you know, is modern and sets it apart from a lot of the, you know, like it's told like it begins you know, in a way that kind of looks like a period piece and it's kind of tackling themes that other period pieces have tackled. And so to kind of like introduce that modern element, I think is an interesting idea. I do kind of wish though that some of that was a bit more fleshed out because I think Chris Pine, like I really like Chris Pine and I think he's an interesting character in the movie. And I think I I really liked his performance, but at the same time, there's like certain parts of his character that I feel like I can't quite get a grasp on, like mm-hmm. when he has that dinner with Alice and there's that kind of like confrontation that they have. And it's like, I'm interested to know in the outside world, like what Frank, what what does that look like? How does he interact mm-hmm. with these people? What's his actual role in all of this? Like, yeah, I, 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 I think, yeah, I think I'd be interested to kind of understand that side of it a little bit more. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And um, I think that that is definitely fair criticism. And I would say that, yeah, in, in general, I do wish this part of the film was more fleshed out specifically because 
it's gone too soon and it's so good at least at least for me at least yeah. for me it is hard though because like when i say that like i don't even necessarily mean it as a criticism really because i think it this is a difficult task where like i think personally that the f- most fun parts of the movie are in victory and like with that production design and like you know mm-hmm. so i think it's hard to then like forsake that for like showing us the outside world in that way mm-hmm. and so i don't necessarily like want the vast majority of the movie movie to take place there but I, it is something that i noticed when i watched that like there's something mm-hmm. to me that like i know that you know, I, I know what kind of character Frank is supposed to be, but yeah, I, f- I just feel like there's like stuff there that like wasn't that I would have been interested to learn more about. But yeah, I think you're, you're kind of walking that line where like obviously like the most sumptuous and stylish parts of the mm-hmm. movie are like, you know, what what is so fun to spend time in, which I guess is like ironic in and of itself because having any fun there is like <laughs> complicated. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess that's an interesting thing to kind of touch on too, which is like, is the movie trying to seduce the audience a little bit with mm-hmm. that? And like with Victory and with ha- the casting of Harry and like, you know, all these things that kind of pull you in and like make you think that Victory is all right. Now it's like, like I've said before, like you never really think that and the movie doesn't really let you sit in that for that long. But mm-hmm. yeah, I do think there's an element of that the movie's trying to kind of trick you in that way. Yeah, I, I do think that the film is trying to seduce the viewer personally. Yeah, seduce at is better than first trick. Watch. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> at, at least on the first watch. And I do think that this is why I found a second watch to be really rewarding because... The first time you, at least I felt very seduced by the film. And then the second time I did feel that creeping horror because I knew everything that was going on outside. So it colored everything that I was seeing. Mm. I did see some reviewers suggest that having horror about some of the things that they found appealing about the movie after the fact was not what Olivia intended. And I'm pretty sure that it was absolutely what she intended. (laughs) Yeah. And she has talked about kind of having to reverse engineer like the male gaze a little bit, which I find interesting Mm -hmm. in the way that she shoots the women towards the beginning of the film and like some of those elements, which I think, yeah, is an interesting thing to think about, but definitely like tells you that she was thinking about that when she set Mm -hmm. those scenes and like, that it is kind of consciously trying to draw you in in that way and then get you to think about why you felt that way. Um, yeah. yeah. And I mean, I, ha- I have seen people criticize her for talking about female pleasure. And I will say first off that in the Vogue interview where it first came up, she showed the interviewer like 20 scenes from the movie and the interviewer only chose to ask her questions about the sex scene and then in response olivia answered lots and lots of questions about how to film the sex scene but the one quote that the interviewer chose to pull from that entire thing and said in the interview that they chose to pull from the entire thing was that the audience was going to see female pleasure and that went viral and so i kind of feel like at that point there was just no getting out of talking about it in interviews. How the media doing something that took something out of context? I'm shocked by that. Yeah, because afterwards I did find that 
you know, in her subsequent interviews, Olivia did talk about it a bit more and people have criticized her for that a ton. But like, I kind of feel like she wasn't just going to not address it because like they already blew what she said way out of proportion like a year earlier. Yeah. So I I don't know. It's also just like, there's a lot of irony and like maybe this is the time to talk about this while we're talking about her in the media because I just think there's a lot of irony in the fact that you know as 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 much as the movie did or didn't work for you as much as the its exploration of its themes did and didn't work for you like I think it's pretty obvious like what the movie is trying to talk about and so then to see the response to her and like the things that she said and the way that the media has treated her specifically is just like really disheartening <laughs> And yeah. really ironic in context of all of that. So I think like it's yeah. yeah, it's 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 a shame for sure. This is just I guess a, a tangent, but I, I'll talk about it as theme because I think that a lot of the press surrounding this movie is reflective of some of its themes of, of the movie, of it being a movie with feminist inclinations, which is that like when people have picked apart this movie, I have seen you know, I I was uh, in my late teens and early 20s in the heyday of Christopher Nolan, and his films definitely got picked apart in different ways for like, quote unquote, plot holes and all that sorts of things. But I just remember like the discussions of his films being, I don't know, just like more good humored when they were nitpicking them and the ways that this film is being nitpicked for basically the same reasons regardless of like what your personal review of don't worry darling is i'm talking about like when they're talking about asking what happened to the plane and all of this sort of stuff things that you would see asked of christopher nolan films back in the day the tone is just completely different yeah it's it's shameful and it reflects poorly on everybody how they've kind of let all of that bubble up and i yeah, it's it's bad. And... Yeah, and that's, that's what I'm going to say about that <laughs> before I move into, I think that in part this movie is not just men are terrible. I, I think that a lot of stuff in this movie is about power. And I do think that this movie, so I, I will preface this saying that like, I am a white, queer, transgender man, and I can't speak for the experiences of women of color. Um, I can only speak to my own experiences uh, with white feminism, which is often exclusionary of trans people and queer people and the dismissiveness I have faced and the sorts of, you know, isolation in certain spaces that I've faced Mm -hmm. from white feminism. So that is my perspective. Um, I think it's, you know, kind of similar to Key's perspective as well when we talk about this. But this movie does talk about, you know, the ways that white feminism denies danger and isolates women of color the second that they start noticing that something is wrong because white women's place in the hierarchy, you know, it's not with white men, but it's, you know, they're next in the hierarchy. And so keeping that binary at the top can be very advantageous for white women. And I think that's very exemplified in the character of Bunny, who 
is the queen bee in her friend group, which is an all-white friend group because they've pushed out Margaret, played by Kiki Lane, and they've pushed her out of their friend group because Margaret is, quote-unquote, acting crazy. And uh, you can see throughout the movie, especially when you watch it the second time, that Bunny has this very tight control over the way that the other women in her all-white friend group behave and the things that they say because she's very incentivized to retain um, the power and victory that she has, which is not equal to that of the men in victory, but which does afford her a number of privileges, um, including being with her children in the simulation and existing, you know, in a relatively privileged role in the world. That, the implications of that, I think, are interesting too. Like, and this, I don't think, takes away from what you said. And like, overall, I definitely agree with all that. I do do just think that moment in the film where Bunny's eyes go kind of wild, (laughs) you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she's like, it's because like, in here, I can finally be with my children or whatever. I did have a moment where I was like, is this what we're doing? <laughs> like, I don't know. Did you share oh, that at all? interesting. No, I I found that twist to be very compelling, actually. So okay. I think we get, I, I guess we differ there. But regardless, I mean, I feel like with the character of Bunny, I don't know. I, I feel like it is interesting because I feel like her character would still work for me, even if the kids were not an excuse. Yeah. Because I still feel like, you know, and we see this this dynamic in, you know, the the white women influencers of you know modern day. Um, there are plenty of reasons why you know women might desire to exist in this binary gendered world, even if they don't have children. Particularly a person like Bunny, who sure. seems to have um, good status in in the world and. As I said, even though she's, you know, underneath the men, she's still very high ranking in in the world of victory and perhaps, you know, high ranking in the world of victory in a way that she couldn't emulate in real life. Maybe in real life, you know, Bunny is a loser, you know. Mm. So I don't necessarily think the twist that she's there for her children is necessary, but I, you know, I don't, I don't mind it really. Yeah, I mean, it does explain why she's like, like, I think in that moment, it's a quick explanation for why she has known this whole time and hasn't said anything or <laughs> is still there in a way that, like, is easily graspable in that moment. Um, but, mm-hmm. yeah, I agree that I think, like, all of that is underneath it as well. Yeah. So the last thing I want to talk about is its portrayal of masculinity, I feel, is very nuanced in that it, it definitely shows that there are many types of ideal man that somebody would potentially want to be. So for Jack, I saw some critics have one of the dumbest criticisms that I've ever seen, which is that why would Jack want to give oral sex to Alice if he is a misogynist? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah that's very dumb so uh yeah why would he want to give uh oral sex to alice since he is a misogynist which in addition to being a really dumb take about oral sex being inherently non-misogynistic 
it's just like those simple ways that people read movies, <laughs> right? That they can't, right. like, they just want it to be easily understood in black and white and one to one. And so when they see that, they're like, oh, I've been taught that this is feminist, therefore it must be right. feminist. And then they're tricked and they're like, what? It wasn't feminist this whole time? Right. I was fooled. So, yeah, you were bamboozled, so to speak. But yeah, I, I think that that view is just interesting because... It misunderstands the type of guy that Jack imagines himself to be. So the type of masculine that Jack desires to be is not like pickup artists who want to have sex with as many women as possible Mm -hmm. and don't really care about the women that they're having sex with and et cetera, et cetera. Jack desires to be this masculine breadwinner who cares for his wife and he finds his value as a man in employment status uh, which is partly represented in the simulation by him getting his nonsense virtual promotion (laughs) (laughs) and by being what he views to be Alice's perfect husband which is mostly comprised of giving her the type of sex that he knows that she likes in the, you know, offline world, as well as making sure that she has money for clothes and stuff in victory. It's interesting to look at it in in a nuanced way like that, because I think that it is very easy to say, oh, you know, these misogynists, They are all the exact same and they all have the same exact, you know, desires in the types of society they want to live in and the ways that they want to treat women. But I do think that this this emasculation from job loss and ultimately desiring to be this, you know, gainfully employed star employee husband with a trophy wife who you pleasure endlessly is a, is a very real facet of modern masculinity and certainly something that a lot of men feel that they have lost. And so I definitely found that to be a really interesting uh, portrayal. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I can definitely see yeah. that. Um, yeah. So I think that kind of is most of what we wanted to talk about there in terms of the themes that the movie covers but if you noticed anything if stuff worked for you that we talked about here if stuff didn't work for you that we talked about here feel free to let us know Uh, we say it at the end of the podcast every time so you probably know it well if you listen to us but we Mm -hmm. blame harrystyles at gmail.com if you have anything you want to say there we welcome the discussion we can't promise that we will respond on the pod but we will get back to you if you contact us so yeah yeah feel free to kind of continue that discussion there but if that's it i think we're going to move into a little fun portion of our podcast which is going to be categories yay yeah so i i thought this would be fun to kind of have like every time harry's in a movie like you know just kind of the same categories that we come back to now maybe we'll build this out a little bit or take some away or add some or something but just to have some you know like superlatives or whatever that we can kind of come back to every time yeah so why don't we do the first one here which is best dressed i'll let you take that gray because the costumes are a big part of this movie yes so i think that the best dressed is either bunny or alice i just think that both of them have 
just these beautiful costumes. Uh, I have no notes. They're just great. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Key? I will say, Bunny, there's this one, like, yellow dress that Olivia wears that I really liked. I was, like, trying to yes. answer this question by Google image searching don't read darling costumes and that was one that i did notice um <laughs> yeah I, I was actually thinking about that dress and i love alice's blue dress as well the yeah. one with the with the floral print on it i want to shout out frank here uh as much as i hate to shout out frank um i will say i do think he looked really good i think that like you know that that button down shirt like the you know the cream and black button down shirt thing he had going he looked really good maybe it's just me thinking that chris pine looks good because i always have thought that but what can i say in the simulation he looked pretty good who knows what terror he looks like outside but (laughs) (laughs) he looked pretty good inside um i also want to take this moment to shout out harry at the venice premiere of the film because oh my god really that that's who's best dressed and like why i wanted to do best dressed is because like obviously clothes are like a big part of like harry's image as a celebrity and like there's something he cares about a lot so i think it's like a you know Mm -hmm. a relevant category to do and yeah like we'll be talking about like gray said at the top of this podcast like we'll be talking about his his outfit probably at our end of year episode but and, and apart from everything else that happened that day, damn, he did look really good. Mm-hmm. His his white jacket, especially. I oh, also, you know, you know what was a great look when he walked off the plane in Italy in his purple getup. Do you remember that one? In his purple getup. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. I wouldn't call it a purple. I would call it like a mulberry, right? The Gucci sweater and the mulberry. Yeah, like not, not you correcting me on colors. Well, that's not what I think of when I think of purple. purple. <laughs> and then I was, I was thinking of, I was thinking of this, this, this white outfit. Okay, yeah, yeah, the one with the necktie. It was very oh, yeah. like Europe. Yeah, yeah, like I, we again, we'll talk about it at the end of your episode. But it was great. It was very unified. The looks all went together. It was very European. You know, Hollywood film star comes to Venice was like the look, mm-hmm. and yeah. Shout out to Harry Lambert because those were great, and so that's why I was like, think should get best dressed. I was like, I was like, wow, he's famous for real. <laughs> All right, now the next one I'm really excited to do. Okay, and I think I'm gonna have more to say about about this than Gray, but we'll <laughs> I'll put it to you first. It's the character you think we get the farthest on Bake Off. What are your thoughts on this, Gray? Well, I just thought that Alice probably would get the furthest because. She has a lot of spunk, and she seems to be pretty good at cooking and baking and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And then he has a paragraph here, so... You guys, I really came prepared. This is arguably the question on this document that I'm the most prepared for. (laughs) And um, I would just... I I have a lot of thoughts on Bake Off, and we'll be touching on it again in our outro of today's show, but um, I just love... The Great British Bake Off, and I love watching it. And again, obviously, this season is like we're not going to talk about uh, Mexican Week, but overall, as the show, <laughs> generally, it is something that I look forward to every week. And so, Jack would be the f- out round one, which is really you're good on Bake Off if, as long as you're not out round one, right? That's like what you, where you don't want to be. Everything else, it's like okay, round one is like okay, really, like you're the first one out. That's got to be Jack. I mean, he had that his dismal mm. performance in the kitchen that one time where he thought something was like potatoes or whatever when it wasn't. I don't know. It's been a while since I've seen the film, but <laughs> it was something like that. 
And then you can track, you know, all the different archetypes of Bake Off. So you've got like the young ingenue who has a lot to learn, but that Paul kind of like weirdly flirts with a little bit. (laughs) So that has to be Violet, right? You've got like, I feel like Asif Ali's character, the one who's like exceedingly charming and like everybody's gonna love him. And like in this moment, we're forgetting, of course, about the fact that like he's in incel IRL because... (laughs) We don't get to see him in the outside world, so all I can really speak to is the energy that he projects inside the simulation, which I was pretty charmed by. Yeah, you've got um, Margaret, who's the one that goes home early, who, like, everybody's super mad about that, like, once a season that happens where somebody, like, goes out way too early and, like, there's an uproar, so I feel like that would be Margaret. Yeah, and then I think probably Shelly would win, and that's my take. Nice. So you really thought this through. I really did. I was like, I was just gonna say Shelly, and then I was like, I need to get into this because I have thoughts. So you have thoughts. You have thoughts. Yeah, I love tracking the, all the different big off archetypes every time, and it amuses me <laughs> greatly. So we didn't get any kooky middle-aged women in victory, but I do enjoy Carol on this year's big off. So <laughs> maybe, maybe, ne- maybe next Olivia movie or next movie Harry's in, we'll have mm-hmm. we can talk about the kooky. Uh, middle-aged lady archetype but for now to see we can let us take that into our favorite scene so great what was your favorite scene in the movie okay so there's a stretch that stretches from alice in the bathtub to bunny telling alice that she is just like margaret that is immaculate it is so good it stretches through the party it stretches through Jack tap dancing. It stretches through her arguing with, with Bunny. Every step is just, it's just so good. It, it's just really good. Wow, so for know. your favorite scene, you picked like four scenes? <laughs> no, I think it's it's basically the same scene because in like, I mean, it leads into each other, but they're all connected. Hmm. So Alice you know, puts her head yeah, out of I the I like water. the bathtub scene a lot. Yeah. And then Jack tries to coerce her into having a baby, but he looks really sexy. So the first time I was like, <sighs> oh, Harry Styles dating simulator. I love you. And then, you know, they go into the party. Um, and I, I guess I just didn't feel like this whole stretch was like super different scenes because it's progresses really linear you know what i mean yeah like then alice gets stressed at at the party then jack gets his fake little promotion and he's tap dancing dita fontese is there it's just so good what is your favorite scene yeah so i feel like this is probably pretty obvious because i've mentioned it a few times but i it's it's just that opening party scene i just think it's killer Mm -hmm. i think olivia is really good at staging that kind of like overlapping dialogue multiple characters in a room kind of scene like i think Booksmart is like that's all Booksmart is you know like it's 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 an all-in-one-day movie where they go from party to party to party so there's a lot of that in that movie and I think you can see it here I think like they said like a lot of that scene was improvised I think it is it just is super natural and fun I think you know Harry and Nick Kroll and Olivia and Florence and like like I think everybody in that scene is really good um and it's just a really enjoyable scene I think because it's like like at least I went into this movie knowing that it was all going to break down because like i feel like you know you go in knowing it's a psychological thriller so you're like okay this isn't gonna last very long but it did you know it, it did charm me that that opening scene because because the way it's it's staged so yeah that was my favorite yeah okay so did harry 
chew the fuck out of that bread. <laughs> yes or no? So this is probably my favorite of our repeated categories that I hope we get to do every time Harry is in a film. And um, this is, of course, based on the iconic, iconic letterboxed review for Dunkirk, which is some variation of Harry really chewed the fuck out of that bread, which he did. And we will talk about that if we ever do an episode on the film Dunkirk. So shout out to that person. The next time we do this, I will endeavor to look up that Letterboxd review so that I can credit you. But for now, it's lived on in in infamy and in our memories ever since. So I'm going to say yes, he did chew the fuck out of that bread. There is a specific moment in the film that made me suggest this category that I can't remember the exact thing he eats right now. But yeah, I can confirm that he did, in fact, chew the fuck out of that bread. You know what else he chewed the fuck out of in this movie, Key? How X-rated are you gonna... <laughs> are you gonna go with this one? I was just gonna say he ate tuna out of the can. Get your mind out of oh, the wow. gutter, Key. We went, in two different... <laughs> we, we went in two different directions. Yeah, the tuna thing... So, like, our friend Ava, who you will know if you listen to two of the episodes of this podcast that um Ava featured on which I would highly recommend did see this film like a year before it was released and um kept tweeting about tuna in relation to this movie <laughs> like dropping these like subtle hints so yeah it was it was it was good to to get that tuna in there yes he chewed the fuck out of that tuna uh oh man I ordered a tuna fish sandwich the same week that I saw don't worry darling and I was like I feel like I'm in in cell food. But the thing is, like, he didn't put any mayonnaise in it. He didn't put, like, any vegetables in it. Like, come on, man. Come on, dude. Oh, that house must have smelled so bad. Yeah, I don't like tuna anyway, but I did work in a restaurant where we had tuna salad that did have a lot of other things in it besides tuna. So Mm -hmm. just straight up tuna is, is wild to me. Ugh. So. Okay. Our last one. Gayest moment. Key, what's the gayest moment? Don't worry, darling. Well, it has to be Harry just deciding to kiss Nick Kroll unscripted for absolutely no reason during filming um, and then repeating it at the film's premiere. So, I mean, how can I not say that one? (laughs) I would like to get in Nick Kroll's corner and say that Harry and Nick Kroll decided to kiss each other. Yeah, but overall, I will say the film is like pretty camp, right? So like... yeah. We're talking about gayest moment. There is a lot of like stuff in it that I do think is like pretty camp. So I, I'll, I'll mention yeah. that as well. What about you? I mean, to go off of that, yeah, I, I guess a good thing to close out our, our categories is a conversation about like, it. it is so funny that like when we were writing out the themes, we we're like, what's the themes? Heterosexuality. <laughs> I mean, which I mean, which says really all you need to know about. I do think that this film has a certain camp sensibility, and I do kind of hope that, like, maybe in a few years, there is some reassessing of this film because I don't know. I I I think that there is something there, and I personally, you know, I am just an average Joe. So I don't think that I can really be the one to say like X, Y, Z is why this film is camp or whatever. But when people are finally willing to come to this film with more goodwill, I would be interested about what people have to say about it then. Yeah, I will say even just in concept, Harry Styles playing an incel is camp. 
I know. Like, (laughs) and like whether or not that detracts from the movie or enhances it is like in the eye of the beholder. But I, I definitely do think that that is camp. And it's only going to age like wine. Like, we're going to talk about Harry's career next, actually. So uh, I think that we will just transition into that. So the next question was literally, like, in our opinion, how does the film play with Harry's image as a celebrity? Katie, you want to go first? Sure. So, yeah. So I think, like, obviously, like, it being Harry himself, it's camp that... Harry Styles is playing in Cell. There's a lot we can say there. Like we already talked about the work that they had to do to like make him physically into like who Jack mm-hmm. is in the outside world. But then I think like obviously his casting is supposed to make that reveal more unexpected. I think like that's difficult given the genre of the movie and the, the kind of hullabaloo around it. Like I think it's hard to then be truly shocked by the reveal because mm-hmm. at least I, I mean, I don't know. What, what do I know? Like I'm sure plenty of people went in knowing absolutely nothing, but like I went in already kind of knowing that. So I wasn't shocked by it, but like, I do think had I not known and I just went into this movie being like, Oh, I heard Harry Styles was in this movie. Like, obviously it's kind of shocking that that's the <laughs> character mm-hmm. that he ends up playing. And so I think that's, that's definitely one way to, to, to kind of use his image to contribute to kind of the seduction that we were talking about before. Yeah. One of our mutual friends, when they got out of this movie, they referred to it as a Harry Styles dating simulator. At least the beginning of it. (laughs) Right. Which I thought was like the funniest thing that I have seen this year. (laughs) Like when they said that, I was like, that is exactly it. That's, Perfect. I'm like dying laughing. But yeah, I I think that uh, approaching it as a Harry Styles dating simulator is really interesting. I feel like the Jack in the film definitely represents the way that I have seen him represented in a lot of, uh, we'll say, amateur fictions about (laughs) the kind of person Harry Styles might be as a partner at, after. I'm looking at you. (laughs) (laughs) never did i think we'd mention that on the podcast Uh, which i think is very interesting because it is an interesting contrast with both his stage persona of what if a basket of fruit was yassified and his offstage energy of eccentric milf at a farmer's market Uh, I haven't looked at this document in a week, so I was surprised by that. <laughs> yeah, those were a lot of words you just said. They were, weren't they? Yep. So um, that's our opinion on how the film plays with Harry's image as a celebrity. The next question in the document, which I will uh, be answering <laughs> and then we will be discussing, is what has been the response to Harry being in the film in a starring role So I would like to start this discussion with a dramatic reading called A Few Weirdly Harsh Headlines Written by Pretentious Assholes at the Daily Beast About Harry's Acting Career. Wait, so they're all from the Daily Beast? (laughs) These are all from the Daily Beast. Wow. Yeah. Picture me with a monocle and a glass of absinthe as I read this. And uh, (laughs) I I will be performing this reading in a British accent. Oh, God. Great. You really (laughs) want to do that? (laughs) (laughs) Longtime listeners will be glad to hear this, I think, because this is a little revisiting of a segment that we used to call Must Get Rid of Toxic in Community. So uh, without further ado, here is 
the Daily Beast. <clears throat> Harry Styles, don't worry, darling, accent is a nightmare. That's the first one. Don't worry, darling, review. Somebody save Harry Styles. Did Harry Styles sit on Chris Pine in Venice? This surely is an accent you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out Harry Styles is really bad at acting. And uh, the final one. The best scene in Don't Worry Darling is also the worst thing we have ever seen Harry Styles attempt to do. Tap dance. Yeah, the, the drama of that last one is appreciated, <laughs> if nothing else. So, uh, reactions to his increase in visibility have been a bit harsh. I don't think it's deserved, but uh, it seems a little predictable, but it also is a lot harsher than I expected. Um, how, do you, how do you feel about that, Key? Yeah, I think, you know, we touched on this a little bit earlier, so I don't want to dwell on it too much, but obviously it's been complicated. <laughs> um, I think, like, some of that stuff, like, even just the fact like his accent headline like it just 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 like utterly ridiculous and unfair and honestly a little bit mean because it's just his voice mm -hmm. but yeah I, I i've just been trying to do my best to, to ignore it frankly and like that is hard because like movies are like something that i enjoy and that i want to like mm -hmm. kind of take part in the circus around it because that's like part of it and i i usually enjoy like if a big movie comes out like all the conversations that are had and like you know that being said do i enjoy clickbait headlines usually no so so taking it from this sample that's kind of par for the course but yeah i mean it's not ideal is it um <laughs> yeah i mean like it's worth noting that all of the stuff that we talked about before this question um how this plays with his public image and what this means for his career and you know, how he intended people to interact with this role, it's been kind of ignored in favor of making him the internet's punching bag for the past six weeks. And so I, I guess that's been a little bit emotionally difficult. I took the opposite tack of key and have been extremely online, <laughs> mostly because just like, I don't know, it, it's this complicated thing where Harry is more popular numerically than he's ever been. But also, even a lot of his fans are being extremely harsh with him. And it's kind of like, you know, the increase in visibility of somebody, and even the success of somebody, it's not always positive. I don't know. Like, it's, it's not, I'm not saying that, like, I want him to be unsuccessful. I'm saying like the increase in visibility has had an equal increase in the voices that we've been hearing for years and years and years saying all the same garbage that they've been seeing. Only now, shitting on him for being a bad actor or something is actually something that people feel like they're allowed to do. Right. So it is fascinating yeah. to have him you know, and again, we talked about this at the top of the show, so <laughs> we'll try to not repeat ourselves, but I, there is something interesting about those two things happening at the same time where like his music career this year is like more successful than it's ever been. And then the, there, this obviously like the film was financially successful and 
it's not like there's not positive things to say about its reception, but mm-hmm. obviously what kind of comes to our minds is going to be the kind of like most flagrant stuff because that's how it always works. And so like, I think, yeah, it, it, it's just a weird position to be in as a fan. I'm sure it's extremely weird for him, but he seems to be having a great time on tour in various cities mm-hmm. around America. So I'm happy about that. It, it's just yeah it's 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 complicated to have like that kind of like huge success and then also like internet fuckery like happening at the same time but yeah mm-hmm. i think that is kind of just something that comes with the territory when you're when you reach a certain level of success but i think also this is like a new avenue for him that is a bit of a risk so i think mm-hmm. you're always that's just kind of comes with the territory and so you know time will move on and we'll see how how it all ages and and works out legacy wise but um but yeah what do you what do you think is five articles from one publication in a month proportionate to the global crisis we have on our hands of harry styles being in a couple of mid-budget movies (laughs) no i mean obviously i think that (laughs) this is just like a media circus begets a media circus right and so like the more stuff happens the more it snowballs until Mm -hmm. people are writing articles because they know that it gets clicks or whatever and i have been completely ignoring it and haven't been looking at any of it and twitter like purposely pushes the articles at me because they know that Mm -hmm. the headlines are you know inflammatory (laughs) because they want to get me to click on it which gives them ad revenue and so that's how it always works right it is interesting with regards to this movie because one kind of upside to people trying to get to the bottom of the drama is that a lot of people who never get interviewed for movies are getting called for interview with don't worry darling so like so like cinematographers like never get interviewed and matthew libatique has gotten several interviews for don't worry darling because of course people want to know was it dramatic on set? And then he's like, no, but like, here's some other stuff about the movie, <laughs> which I think is great that they did the same thing with the editor, just like a bunch of people. So like, I, I've gotten to enjoy reading interviews from all of these like really wonderful, talented people. So I, like, I'm grateful for that. I wish that this wasn't the context it was in. And I wish that like for film, more people gave attention to these people more often but if that's a side effect of that i guess that is one silver lining for sure and i also just want to say to kind of end out this this little mini segment here that like obviously i feel that the kind of absolutely toxic vitriol that olivia has faced as a result of this movie is like very very important and huge here and like mm-hmm. i i think it's really disheartening to see especially because it so much of it comes from fans and originates from fans and kind of people celebrating you know bad headlines or whatever that that come from within the fan community is like really really disheartening to see and i obviously you know i have not seen fans doing that about harry and i'm and i'm i don't want that to happen to him so please don't take what i'm saying as any kind of statement to that effect but i i do you know it's worth it when we're talking here about the media circus around it and about like bad headlines or whatever that like from what i've seen the person who's faced the brunt of this is olivia and i think that that's you know i think it's important to just kind of state it as it is because because it's it's really sucked and it's been unfair the mindset of the people who seem to have seen don't worry darling five times who still hate her i mean a the venn diagram of people who seem to hate her and people who've seen the movie 
five times seems to be a circle. So, like, what's up with that? But also, stop it? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you anyway. up that box office number, so. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. Just the, the vitriol directed at his partners always from in the fan community is, like, a tragedy. So, yeah. we haven't, I guess, because we don't talk about his personal life on the show, we try not to, so maybe this is even more than we usually like to do. But, like, if we haven't made it clear by now that we find that really fucked up and disgusting, well, we do. So, there's that. Yeah. It's 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 fucked up. It's gross. Leave them alone. Yeah. So let's get okay. back to the film. <laughs> yeah. So how do you feel like this film might be viewed in the long term? Like I personally feel like it's going to be seen as like a really major moment in Harry's career because like wherever he goes from now, he's going to be seen as a cultural figure that's important of the of the you know twenty tens and twenty twenties. So. This will be kind of a, you know, always that moment in his career. Yeah, it's definitely something that's like broken wide in a way that I think like will that that doesn't just go away and that will kind of be something that people remember. And I think like, unfortunately, I really do think that kind of like all the rigmarole around this movie that we've talked about for the last 10 minutes, like is really going to be associated with this movie for a long time. And I guess it's possible that, you know, people could kind of like reclaim it as time goes on. But you know maybe it can add kind of a bit of spice that will make people revisit it but i i think it's like so and this is why we're talking about this at all like if there was like a little smattering of like stuff about this movie that like didn't oh yeah really we wouldn't talk about it probably wouldn't talk about it but you know i i really do think that the kind of everything the hubbub around it is is going to be a huge part of its legacy which i think is kind of a shame but it like i understand it and it kind of is the reality that we exist in now. Um, so yeah, I can't like, that's not like the best answer and that's not like the most comforting answer, but I do have to be honest about that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I have complicated feelings about that because I do think that this film has a lot of merits. It has like a lot of good people and it's very pretty. And I think that like, I've already seen people suggesting that it could become a camp classic. People who are like, in the critical community who I wish took the film more seriously a little bit, but the, the fact that they found something enjoyable about it already, I, I think is already a net positive from people being wholly negative about it. So I, I do find that perspective interesting. I'm a bit on the fence of if this is a, a camp classic. I'm not an expert in camp. I would be intrigued in those perspectives. But yeah, I don't know. I, I think that it is kind of a, a shame that the quote-unquote drama. I, I, I'm saying quote-unquote because, like, I, I think that we exist in a world where the film industry is rife with abuse of power and what seems to be anything that's happened with Don't Worry Darling maybe at, at max is, like, personal disagreements, like, that did not happen on set whatsoever. So like framing this as a troubled production is just not correct. So I, I guess that, you know, that's why I keep, like, I just don't like calling it the drama because I think that that suggests a very different thing than what actually occurred. Mm. But I think it's it's unfortunate that it seems to have bled into the reviews of the movie because, A, I don't think I've ever seen that happen 
on such a wide scale for a movie before, which feels kind of sexist to me. For sure. There's a huge element of that in terms of like the... like the cat fight kind of coverage right and it be it it seems like since you know these reviews exist it kind of immortalizes this conversation in a way that i find altogether unfortunate especially because i a, a lot a lot of behind the scenes stuff for films usually have to do a little bit of digging to find out you know that something existed you don't have to go to like literally like one review of it and immediately find it i think that's true and i think like you touch on something that i wanted to touch on too in this conversation which is that part of this is like harry has a lot of interest around him and he generates a lot of interest in a way that is the case for like traditional old hollywood movie stars (laughs) yeah and like i say that elizabeth taylor right and and it's because (laughs) film stars like i'm not sure if people like this might sound like absolutely dumb to you if you, if you don't like if you're both if you like don't pay any attention to movies but also if you pay a lot of attention because like that's your whole world but like film stars like don't have the same pull in like our culture that mm-hmm. they used to like if you're talking about like a real genuine film star that can open a movie to a big box office like that's really rare right now and mm-hmm. like we're kind of in a weird moment and we have been for a while with like where films exist culturally and so you see a lot more musicians kind of breaking into the film industry. I say a lot more, like obviously musicians like Cher and whatever have, have always been in, in movies and David Bowie what and what have you. Yeah. But um, I, I see it right now with like Lady Gaga and with Harry where like there's so much interest in Lady Gaga. There's so much interest in Harry because mm-hmm. they're so well known outside of films and because pop stars are still one of the genuine places in our society where like you have these figures that become icons that generate a lot of interest Mm -hmm. and so like we're kind of seeing the meeting of that and like a case study of that in terms of this movie where like that kind of traditional tabloid coverage can be sustained because it's him because he's a pop star and generates that kind of traditional interest in a way that a lot of these people involved in the movie frankly like wouldn't because they're just not as famous as you know, traditional right, studio film right. stars would have been back in the day. So I think there's like a lot to unpack there that will kind of be unpacking for as long as Harry is in movies. But I think it is something that I definitely interest. I, I definitely noticed even before the movie came out that like just because he's in it, it kind of lends this extra layer to it that mm-hmm. other movies don't have in the same way, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's all that I had to say about that. Do you have any closing thoughts, Key? Yeah, so I guess I'll just say that like this podcast episode has kind of been all over the place and we had technical difficulties and then we came back and we're here now. And so I hope that we were able to communicate everything that we wanted to communicate. But um, especially because I'm the person who came on this podcast with like a little bit of like, you know, the movie didn't totally work for me, even though there are things about it that I really liked and, and what have you. I'm just going to end by saying, like, (laughs) hope that that was communicated in a way that was okay and that wasn't upsetting to people. You know, I'm just like anybody else. Go to the movie theater, watch the movie, have opinions on it, and then I leave that behind me. And so I hope that this episode is okay with everybody and we will have one coming on My Policeman and Harry's tour and the end of the year and all the other stuff if, 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 you know, our other coverage is more appealing to you. So hopefully this conversation was one that you enjoyed. And we look forward to breaking down all the other things Harry's going to do this year. Yes. And also, since this movie is quite polarizing, I would like to say, if you disliked the movie, 
and you hate that I liked the movie <laughs> or you disagree with any of my opinions on the movie, I am not a professional movie reviewer. <laughs> yeah, at the beginning of the show, we were going to be like, we review Don't Worry Darling. And then we were like, uh, let's not say that because uh, I don't know if that's what this is. I, I am not a film critic and have never published a formal piece of film criticism. So uh, if you disagree with it, that's okay. We are interested in your perspective, certainly, as long as they are not the perspective of one of our Dutch listeners who said that this podcast wasn't good for anything, <laughs> that we had nothing interesting to say. Shout out to that Dutch listener. But yeah. <laughs> um, so I, uh, but yeah, if you, if you agree with me, that's awesome. If you disagree with me, that's okay too. Yeah. So. And I feel the same way. We're just people. Just people. Who saw a movie and had a conversation about it that maybe somebody enjoyed. We hope you did. But yeah, I think that will take us on our way out of here. Yeah. Okay. Are you looking forward to Non-Hairy Things Key Book Movie TV Rex? One non-hairy thing bringing you joy in these difficult times. Yes. So like I said before, Bake Off is back. We've been watching it like with friends together. It's been really fun. Mm-hmm. The contestants this year, I really, really like. I'm really enjoying it. And it's just nice to have like a weekly show to look forward to mm-hmm. every week. Like I feel like so many things just drop and you just like watch it and then you like move on to the next thing. So just like the weekly like, you know, habit of, of watching it, I've, I've been having fun with. I also would like to shout out the Off Menu podcast with James Acaster and Ed Gamble. The last two episodes of our podcast, the thing that I talked about at the end of our show was Stranger Things, so it will come to you. Uh, it should not come as a shock to you that I first discovered this podcast because Joseph Coyne was on it, who plays Eddie Monson in Stranger Things. His episode is great. I would highly recommend to listen to it if you just want to hear people talk about food. I did like show it. I like I was in the car with my mom when I was visiting and I played it to her and she did not find it interesting at all, but to each their own. Mm. I love it. And then the last thing I will recommend here at the end of our show is two songs. Okay. Yes, this also ties back into Stranger Things, which still has me by the heartstrings. I've been trying to prolong the Stranger Things experience in any way I can. Therefore, I've given Kate Bush's discography a more of a shot. And I would like to recommend two songs, both off of the same album that Running Up That Hill is off of, The Big Sky and The Morning Fog. Listen to them like every day. Great songs. Really just like, I, I don't even know what to say at this point. Just go listen to The Big Sky because it will pump you up. Listen to it when it's sunny out. The Morning Fog is just like, listen to it every single day when I come home from work. It's just a vibe. It like makes me feel good. So that's my suite of recommendations this week. That's what about you, Brian? Recommendations. First off, if you haven't seen The Woman King yet, what are you doing? Go watch it right now. It's a historical epic starring Viola Davis, and it's about the Dahomey people in the 1800s, and the plot is so twisty that I don't want to spoil any of it. It's just so good. Like, please go see it. It's like a perfect double feature with... Don't worry, darling. It's about female warriors and just sort of like the ways that gender is stratified in different societies. And it's just, it's just I know I said this over and over, but it's just really good. Please go see The Woman King. It's honestly a great double feature with Don't Worry, Darling. If you wanted to have like a whole day of watching movies, it's just awesome. The second thing is... I'm a gamer now. Uh, 
Wow, you took inspiration from uh, <laughs> Jack being on Discord in I did. Darling. I did. Oh, listeners, he and I have been chatting on Discord for years. So, like, <laughs> when Discord came up on the screen, I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> it felt very called out. But, yeah, Theotown is this little game. You can play it on a tablet or on the computer or on your phone. And it's like... Sim City, if Sim City was easier and had the graphics of like old roller coaster tycoon games. And if you're not familiar with either of those games, I'm old, so I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> roller coaster tycoon fucks. Roller coaster tycoon does fuck, and I was obsessed with it as a kid. And Theotown is great because, like, you definitely have the option to be anti-carceral in your city. Like, I've been resisting putting police in my city because I just, like, don't feel like it. And the game will give you options like, uh-oh, your citizens are rioting. You can you, you, you can either make them happier or you can call the police on them. So, they, so the game implicitly suggests that the police are not going to make them happier. It's just wow. like, quiet. I'm impressed. It's... It's 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 great. It's a fantastic game. It's the it's just very like calming and awesome. So highly highly recommend Theo Town. Yeah. Do you want to take us out of here, Key? Yeah, sure. So you can contact us at WeBlameHarryStyles at gmail.com. On Twitter and Tumblr, we can be found at HarryStylesPod. Follow us there. DM us there if you have any thoughts on this episode or any suggestions. So yeah, let us know what you think of the show. Another way to do that is to rate and review our podcast on iTunes or Spotify. We'd so appreciate it if you just took a second and give us a rating if you enjoyed it. Subscribe to us on your preferred podcast host to become notified of our next episode. Thank you for listening and talk to you next time. Goodbye. All right. Bye, everyone. Come on.